for finishing up that last. Am I on? I know. Romans 
come forward to take control of him. And then our wonderful Peter, he comes out with his machaira, his, his fisherman's sword, and he lops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And as Bob was putting it last week, probably he was trying to actually go for his throat or something, but missed and got the ear. And Jesus immediately takes control of the situation. He bends down, he takes the ear, and then he's on the ground, or maybe he caught it in midair. And he took the ear, put it back on Malchus, and healed him. Right in front of him. The miracle, like everyone falls to the ground, miracle. He turns around and heals miracle right in front of him. And then he turns to Peter as if in a, in a rebuking sort of way. He says, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? Peter, I've been teaching you for a long time now. I've told you over and over again that there's going to be a time when I'm going to be delivered to be crucified. This is that time. Don't get in the way. And then Jesus hands his life over to those that were seeking to arrest him. And he told them, you can have my life, but you're not going to arrest the disciples. And so the disciples get to leave. And in doing so, he saves Peter's life, of course, because in their system, Peter trying to take someone else's life, he was guilty of being But we all know that Peter had a wonderful ministry later on, and so it wasn't his time yet. And so immediately, they take Jesus, they bound him, and then they took him first to the high priest Annas. That's not in um, the book of Matthew in our passage, but it does talk about it in the book of John, and we'll look at it in a little bit. So they go in the middle of the night, find Jesus. Take him to Annas. Annas doesn't get what he wants uh, from Jesus. And then from there, then they go and they see the high priest Caiaphas. And that's where we're at this morning. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll start with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who was it who struck him? That's the word of God. That's our passage this morning. Let's pray.
this particular time. The history of mankind has undoubtedly been bombarded with political controversies, and right now, you can't turn on a radio or a television without hearing the name Brett Kavanaugh. Everywhere you turn, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. And Rightfully so, because his nomination is a huge deal, right? He's being nominated, appointed to go on to the Supreme Court. And the decisions that he's going to be part of making could impact our country for decades to come. So the stakes are very high. But what's most concerning to me about this whole controversy is the question of justice. Are we really concerned about justice with all that's going on. I am 100% certain that we all would agree, as well as with probably most of the United States and the rest of the world for that matter, that we do not condone sexual assault. Nobody does. Nobody condones someone who is going to sexually assault someone else. And if that has happened, we would want there to be a fair trial. And if the evidence was, was shown, and it showed that this person committed the crime, then they should be prosecuted. If Kavanaugh committed this offense, then he should be prosecuted. There's no question in our mind that if someone sexually assaulted someone, then they should deserve a fair trial. But I think there's many of us that are concerned regarding the validity of the alleged victim's accusation against Judge Kavanaugh. Mostly because of the timing that the allegations have come out and because of what is at stake. And when the stakes are high, the temptation to be unjust can also be very high. Whether or not this is a corrupt situation where those who oppose Kavanaugh's political opinions are trying their best to prevent him from getting into office, or whether or not the accusations are legitimate remains to be seen and heard. You know, God knows. But what's sad is that our, our situation that's going on right now in the United States is nothing new when you look at controversy of political corruption. We've been plagued with it for as long as mankind has been alive. Alive. 
Now look at the mafia, right? Just a few decades ago, they were really powerful, controlled judges, senators, police officers. You know, I used to get offended to a certain degree with the fact that people wouldn't just take my testimony at, at my word when I was in court. And I, I went through this background test um, to be a, a police officer. I walked into court. I held up my hand. I swore, I'm going to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. So trust what I'm going to tell you. You can, you can believe what I'm going to say. Well, I don't blame people anymore for not trusting me at my word when I'm on the stand. Because when I'm watching the news, I, I don't know what I can believe anymore. Now, I've been to a number of trainings where they've analyzed some of the different police shootings, and I can tell you this. Some of them I know a little bit about. Some of them were legitimate shoot shootings. And what I'm listening to on the TV just makes me angry. And then some of them, they weren't. They weren't good shootings. But the way that it's presented, I, I don't know sometimes. What, what, what's, what's the truth? Even the way that I, I vote politically, even when I'm voting for my political side, sometimes I wonder, like, where did they get their information from? Can I really trust that? It's sad. It is sad that we can't trust some of the systems that are supposed to keep us from being illegitimate, from being corrupt. We're supposed to keep us just. There's no greater example of corruption in the passage we have before us this morning. In the eyes of the Jewish leaders and somewhat in the eyes of the Romans, Jesus posed a very serious threat. And they felt that he had to be killed or else they could lose their place of power. Jesus had to be stopped, and the only way in their minds that they could stop him was to kill him. So as I'm, as I'm looking at our passage this morning, and I'm seeing 500 different themes running through it, I picked three different points that I would like us to get from our passage this morning. Number one, Jesus' trial was corrupt and unjust. Number two, the trial was part of God's plan. Therefore, he controlled trial. Number three, God's love for all peoples was magnified through the outcome of these trials. So number one, the corrupt and unjust trial. Jesus' trial was corrupt because the Sanhedrin had already reached their verdict before they received their evidence. From the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, up until this point, he had gone out, he had taught the Jews, he confounded all the religious people, they didn't know what was going on, he was unmasking them left and right, and he was a huge threat to them. They already knew where he was going to be standing on a lot of these different issues. They had already decided in their minds, we need to kill this guy. They were completely blind to the fact that he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, miracle after miracle, truth after truth was being preached. And all they could think of is they needed to kill him. He was a sought-after man. Sought, some people sought him for death. Some people sought him for wisdom. Others sought him because they knew that he was the Messiah. 
We saw that ever so clear when he's coming in the triumphal entry on the colt. Another prophecy fulfilled. And they're, they're praising him and worshiping him. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're waving the palm branches. Hosanna in the highest. And as he comes in, he arrives in as the king bringing Passover, the lamb, the true lamb that is coming in. And all the while, the religious leaders remain blind. And instead of repenting, plotting ways to kill Jesus. In fact, chapter 26 begins in verse 3 by saying, Then the chief priests and the elders gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Isn't that horrible? The judges decided Jesus' sentence before the trial. And this was completely against their law. Their law was supposed to protect against this kind of injustice. In fact, hundreds and hundreds of years before, God spoke to Moses and he instructed his people with these words. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God has given you. According to your tribes, and they shall judge their people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the, the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. The fact that the high priest and his council came to a verdict before there was even a trial revealed the fact that they didn't, they didn't want the evidence to be presented because if the evidence was present, presented, it would reveal their hypocrisy and unmask everything about them. And they would find out the people would say, yeah, they're the ones that need to repent. They wanted nothing to do with justice. So they had to come up with sort of a, and I chose this word, I think it's appropriate, a fake trial. Say can you do it with a fake trial? Alright. Some sort of concocted hearing so that they could sort of check the boxes saying, yeah, we went through the steps, we had our trial, see, it was legitimate that we convicted Jesus and put him to death, but there was nothing legitimate about their trial that they were going to have as we're going to see. The judicial system for the Jewish people was governed and determined by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin means sitting together. It was made up of a group of elders, priests, chief priests, who came together and they would hear hearings. And then they would hear all sorts of trials and uh, they were supposed to weigh them just according to how Deuteronomy um, talked about. And we'll go into it a little bit more about some of the ways that they were supposed to um, listen and judge things. And then once they came to a conclusion, they would take a vote, and the majority vote would determine whatever the verdict was going to be. Um, every town that had a, was big enough to have a synagogue had a Sanhedrin. There was 23 members in the Sanhedrin for all of the smaller towns around Jerusalem was sort of like the Supreme Court. They had the great Sanhedrin. There were 71 members in that one. And Caiaphas, the high priest, was the one in charge of 
that same people. And so they have the power to judge and determine all sorts of different crimes, what the outcome is going to be, what the verdict is going to be, all the way up to capital punishment. They could hear and try someone and then come to a determination that this person deserved to be executed. And that's what they would say should be should be the judgment, but they were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. The Romans had to carry out capital punishment. It wasn't always that way. Back, back in the day before the Romans were in control of everything, the law allowed for the Jewish people to also carry out capital punishment. It was usually done by stoning. But the Romans, who were in charge of everything that's going on in this time period, they want to make sure they maintain control. They want to have peace. And when you're talking about crimes that deserve punishment and death, you're talking about pretty big situations. They want to make sure that they're part of that decision making. And the Romans also wanted to make sure that there was instilled fear in all of the Jews that were around them. We all know that the Romans, the way they executed someone was to crucify them. And they hung them up on a tree for everyone to see. Until people could always remember, oh, you know, it's the Romans, the Romans are powerful, they're in control, we need not challenge anything that the Romans do. The Jewish law stated that the accused had a right to three things. Number one, a public trial. Number two, the right of self-defense. And number three, they had to have at least two witnesses come forward to corroborate whatever the accusation was. And the Jewish law tried very hard to make sure that these were credible witnesses. If a witness was found to be a false witness, then whatever the accusations were being made on someone else, whatever the punishment would have been for that person, they incurred that punishment upon themselves all the way up to capital punishment. So they could be executed in some cases for being a false witness. Also in cases where someone was uh, deserving of capital punishment, the witnesses were the ones that were to cast the first stones. Just in case they didn't catch the fact that they were false witnesses and they didn't give completely accurate testimony. In a sense, then, the blood of the accused would be on their heads. And then according to the Mishnah, which is written, uh, oral tradition of the Jewish people, um, it was always room to bring in more evidence, all the way up into the point of, of the execution. So you can picture, like, marching all the way up to the mountainside where they're going to put up the cross. And they're all the way up until that point. And if someone was to say, I have, I, have more, I have more evidence, I have something to say about what's going on, they would stop and listen to what was being presented to weigh whether or not it was accurate. And if it, if it was important enough, they would stop what's going on and, and take time to, to listen. So they always erred on the side of the accused. During trial also, 
one of the reasons why it needed to be done during the day was because it needed to be a public trial so there could be people all around gathered listening. And as the trial was happening and evidence was being brought in, there were people that would herald what was being talked about inside the trial all the way out throughout the crowd. So people could hear what's going on and, and maybe, maybe someone would say, I have something to say that I, I'm a witness to something. And then they would bring forth that information. In the event that the Sanhedrin determined that the person was guilty and um, deserving of capital punishment, the Sanhedrin would pause and wait on, go to a second day where they would spend time praying and fasting and weighing the evidence in their mind. And then on the third day, they would come back together and convene, and then they would vote. And then the majority of the vote was cast, and that's how they pronounced their verdict. If someone from the Sanhedrin gave a vote of guilty on the third day, and then they decided, you know what, after hearing some more of what was what was brought forward on that day, now I'm going to change my vote to non-guilty, they're allowed to do that. However, if they said I'm going to cast a vote of not guilty. And then they heard something. Or if, if they said, if someone said that the person, I cast my vote as in they are guilty, but then they heard more evidence, they could change it to not guilty. But it couldn't go the other way around. They could say guilty and then change it to not guilty. Once again, they are always going on the side of the accused. So that's, in, in general, how these trials are supposed to go. So taking that in mind, let's go back to our story and see if it was a just trial. The first thing we notice is that Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was taken directly to the high priest, Annas, which is Caiaphas' father-in-law. We read this in John chapter 18, beginning with verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So the trial begins at Annas' house when it should have been at a court in the middle of the night. It's the first whammy. It is not a public trial. And you can look into it a little bit more. We're not going to go into it this morning, but Annas did not get out of Jesus what he was hoping for. He was hoping to get some more evidence to show that uh, he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. We can go ahead and determine him guilty right now. But he didn't get what he wanted. Jesus remained silent. And so he sent Jesus to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And he didn't send him to Caiaphas' court. He sent him to his house. Just like he did went to over at Annas' place. Still in the middle of the night. And we know it's in the middle of the night. Why? Because... The rooster hasn't crowed yet. 
to the crow at dawn. So everything is happening in the dark. And all the witnesses that we believe are there are those that are part of the band, part of the group that is angry, that wants to get hold of Jesus and put him to death. Now we see that the witnesses they're trying to drum up, or look like that they're looking for, are false witnesses. Matthew 26, 59 and 60 says that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were seeking false testimony. And they had trouble finding. They couldn't find people to come forward that can give a false testimony about Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that the problem was is that they couldn't find two witnesses that were able to corroborate each other. They had trouble matching up their stories. It's a lot easier to match your stories if you're both telling the truth. But if you're both trying to corroborate together and conspire to come up with, with a false claim, it's going to be a lot harder. But eventually, of course, as we know, they found two people who came up with sort of the same testimony. Good enough for this fake trial. And those two testified saying, this man said, speaking of Jesus, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. see the similarities. It's not the exact same. But nonetheless, it was kind of the same and good enough for this court since it was completely corrupt anyways. And Jesus told them this statement that destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Do you remember when that was? It was after he cleansed the temple. After he wove together a whip and he came in there and he drove out all the money changers and he overturned the tables and he caused this huge ruckus. Annas' temple, by the way, totally corrupt for reading. They're in charge. And then the, the leaders come up to Jesus at the end of it and say, but what, basically, by what authority are you doing all this? His response, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. They knew what that meant, as we're going to see clearly in this passage. And then in that passage, it goes on to say what Jesus was talking about was the temple of his body, which we all know is going to come to fruition as well. So the witness came forward and misstated what Jesus actually said. But nevertheless, the Sanhedrin was aware by this time that Jesus was identifying himself as the Messiah by making this statement. And after hearing this testimony about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, Caiaphas put on quite a show. I, I'm thinking it was pretty theatrical. I mean, he had to appear su super angry. And he looks to Jesus, and he's waiting for him to say, say something. These guys are accusing you of being the Messiah. Don't you have anything to say? Because you know what that means. That means that we can execute you. Silent. Caiaphas got all the more angry. And he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And Jesus replied, you have said so. This affirmed from the Sanhedrin that he was declaring to be the Messiah, which we all know he was. So he's just telling them the truth, but they're blind. And they don't believe that he's the Messiah. And so therefore, they have what they, they feel that they need in order to pronounce a sentence on him to execute him. And so, after that, Caiaphas hears what's going on, and he says, this is blasphemy, this is blasphemous. And he looks at all the people and says, this is blasphemy, can you hear what's saying? Do we need to hear anything else? And then he asks the people, what should we do? And they say, put him to death. Right there, they pronounce judgment. We already, we already learned what we were talking about. Their own custom was to do what? After hearing the evidence, after hearing the people come forward, they were supposed to fast and pray on the next day. Because they're supposed to want to hear what God has to say. And then reconvene on the third day to cast their vote. That never happened. He was immediately sent over to Caiaphas. But also remember, this is during the Passover. And they would be missing out on a big feast if they fasted and prayed that next day. It's just so ironic. It's horrible. trial wasn't public. It was in the middle of the night. It was held at a home, not in a court. They sought false witnesses and found two that gave false testimonies. Ultimately, Jesus was the only credible witness in the room. But God was completely in control of everything that happened. Number two, the trial was part of God's plan. Therefore, he controlled the trial. In a worldly way of thinking, it seems ludicrous to think that God would actually orchestrate such a horrible trial. Something that, that would be so unjust that God would ordain that that would take place. But in God's infinite wisdom, he knew that this had to happen to save us. Acts 4.27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. John 10.17-18 for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's Jesus. And then we remember Jesus' reaction when Peter cut off the servant's ear. And Jesus says in verse 53, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? 
And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Do you realize who I am? I am Jesus. Nobody takes my life from me. But I lay it down for you. To save you. Because I love you. Jesus allowed gave Satan authority to reign in this situation right here, in the sense that Jesus did not give the grace, the Holy Spirit actually did not give grace to those that were in the trial to open up their eyes and see Jesus for who he was. Remember, we're prone to wonder our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can understand? Jesus didn't force them to be wicked. That's what they're prone to do. What God decided to do at that moment was not intervene and help them to see who he was at that moment. Because God, in his love, knew that he needed to be the sacrifice. So that even, if you think about it, even some of those that are condemning him in that room might have seen him for who he was after he rose again from the grave. We don't know. That would be the only way that they would be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the hearts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And because they were blind, they spat at him and hit Jesus and mocked him and told him to prophesy, Who hit you? And in their blindness, they failed to realize that they were fulfilling prophecy. Wow, they were spitting and hitting him and mocking him. Isaiah 53, 7-10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He shall see his offspring, the dust. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. They were fulfilling prophecy right at the moment when they were mocking him, saying, Prophesy! The Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus prayed, Not my will, but thine. 
And yes, it was God's will that Jesus be crushed so that he may again be exalted. Jesus had the authority to lay down his life and take it up again, just as he makes clear in his last sermon. You realize sermons aren't always like long like like I'm preaching right now. Sometimes they're like really short. And it's looked at that these last few couple verses that Jesus says after he identifies himself again as his last sermon. And it's powerful. And it brings us to number three. God's love for all peoples was magnified through the outcome of these trials. Caiaphas pressed Jesus and he told him, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said so. And he then goes on to preach a short message referencing two very powerful Old Testament passages which proclaim his deity all the more. He said, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referencing two Old Testament passages, Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord. So, God the Father says, says to his Son, Jesus Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, And behold, with clouds of heaven, so there's the picture right there, there's the reference, with clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's amazing. Like, tell us who you are. Are you the Messiah, basically? You've said so. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the power, and I'm going to be coming out, out down from the clouds. And here is the beautiful love that he has for him, for us. And he says, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. That's the outcome of all of this evil that is happening. I, I picture it like there, there is God's puppet. He's, he's, orca- he's in control of this whole situation. He is allowing it to happen right now. He's withdrawing his grace so that his love would be magnified for all of us to see so that people from all over the world will be able to be forgiven for all of their sin. That is why he died. Do you hear that this morning? Am I I just rambling too much? Am I I going over too many bumps because I'm not a, a fluid speaker this morning? Are you coming to hear a history lesson? There is no other way that we can be saved. 
doesn't want us just to come and hear data every Sunday. He wants our hearts. He wants us to know the injustice he went through because he loves us and he doesn't want us to die for the sin that we have committed and deserve to die. So, we need to say, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Realize that he is not concerned what is going on in the sense of, oh no, did, did Brett Kavanaugh do it? Did he not? He knows exactly what happened. He's going to put the right person in there. Too often, I confess, I spend more time running directly to my phone to see what, what the new articles are. What's going on in the world. And I, I quickly get anxiety. <laughs> I quickly start thinking, oh shoot, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be taken over by China now. You know, who knows what's what's gonna happen. And then before I know it, I've been addicted to scrolling through the different articles and I haven't even taken the time to sit and kneel before the Lord God and spend time in prayer. And he's the one in control of the whole situation. Amen. He is a loving, sovereign God, fully in control, all knowing, not worried about Supreme Court nominations, but just wanting to seek him, just wanting us to seek him. And then when we do so, he'll make our paths straight. Remember Romans 8.28. No matter what you're going through, I know that there's all sorts of people with hard times right now. Physically, I've been thinking of Jim Bragg. That's scary. You know? Um, all sorts of different things going on in our lives. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Thank you that your word does not return void. Thank you, Father, for dying for us. Thank you for helping us to see you for who you are. And I pray, Father, that if there is someone struggling in here that is having doubts, that needs peace, that needs affirmation, that they heard it from you. Holy Spirit, would you work in our lives? Would you build us up? Would you sanctify us this morning? And Lord Jesus, if there is a division that we have in our heart with someone else as we're coming to your table, help us to confess that sin. Help us to be free of sin and repent. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. In your name.